This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So this is my last talk in a series of talks on Zen as a religious practice. I've chosen the topic to, uh, of self-psychology because um, firstly, it's um, my teacher Barry Majid um, has written extensively on on Zen and self-psychology, and I would recommend his first book on that particular topic. The other reason why I've chosen self-psychology is that it's also a developmental theory. And uh, what I'm wanting to do today is really connect together our the process of human development with our spiritual development as Zen practitioners. So in the first part of the talk, I'll be summarizing some of the reasons why I view Zen as a religious practice and how I was drawn to Zen because of its teaching of the direct realization of our true nature in this life, not in some future life to come. From the Zen perspective, the goal of life is to live fully as human beings with one's inherent potential completely developed. This is why the story of Buddha's enlightenment, which is our own story, needs to be understood to have been the consequence of favorable causes and conditions provided by cultural practices and relationships that support our optimal development as human beings. In the same way as there is no baby without a mother, there is no Buddha without a Sangha. In the second half of the talk, I will suggest that human development naturally leads to the realization of our inherent Buddha nature, given these favorable conditions and circumstances. The seed needs to be nurtured. <clears throat> the realization that we are Buddha nature, that all sentient beings are Buddha nature, can be understood as the most mature form of what Heinz Kohut, the founder of self-psychology, called healthy narcissism. This cultural and psychological understanding of Zen practice allows us to understand how the realization of our true self is founded upon healthy psychological development. The realization that if our young self is going to grow, 
it is dependent throughout the life cycle on receiving relational experiences that support us in awakening to the Buddha nature we all participate in. In this talk, I'll be primarily speaking about the theories of developed by Heinz Kuhut, and so it's more like a classical self-psychology. There's been lots of developments in his work since he was writing. Um, he was originally from Austria and, 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 and fled after the Nazis invaded Austria to, uh, and finally began his practice as a psychoanalyst in Chicago. And he broke away from Freudian psychoanalysis to found his own school of self-psychology. In terms of Kohut's religious affiliations, he was a member of the Unitarian Church in Chicago. So part one, Zen as religious practice. Over the course of this year, I have become more conscious of speaking of Zen Buddhism as a religious practice. I think the catalyst for this has been my ongoing facilitation of the precept study group and the preparation for our upcoming Jukai ceremony, meaning literally receiving the precepts in our May residential retreat next year. The Jukai ceremony can be described as an initiation ceremony into the universal way, where the Zen student consciously identifies with the Zen way, taking refuge in the three treasures of Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. However, when I describe Zen as a religious practice, it is religious in the sense of being founded in a sense of wonder rather than belief or creed. Our foundational story has the Buddha to be sitting under a tree. And finally, after seven days of meditating, he looks up and on seeing the morning star, he is filled with wonder, realizing that all beings are already enlightened, perfect and complete, just as they are. Just like the twinkling star. With this realization, his search comes to an end. This is our story. This is what we all need to confirm for ourselves. We all need to recognize who we truly are. That is why the koan, who am I, is the gateway into the way. There are no authoritative scriptures in Buddhism. There is no word of God to rely upon. All we have is the authenticity of our own experience. Our trust or faith is founded in this experience, not on the scriptures. That is why Zen is known as, quote, a transmission outside of doctrine, not dependent on words or language, 
nor on concepts, labels, or categories, which directly points to the mind by seeing one's nature in order to realize Buddhahood. They're the words attributed to Bodhidharma when he came from India to China in the fifth century of the common era. Perhaps all religions have their beginnings in this profound experiential opening into the unity of all existence, bringing with it a profound sense of peace, joy and love, accompanied by a sense of the inherent perfection of just being, nothing lacking, nothing missing. This experience is what Heinz Kuhut described as cosmic narcissism, falling in love with our true self. The Tathagatagaba, Buddha nature, the treasure that is eternal and unchanging. However, as we all know, something invariably happens and the original realization becomes encrusted in a system of beliefs, rules and authority. The original teaching is lost. Unfortunately, this is what many people experience religion to be. Not a surrender to the beauty of the morning star, but a submission to the will of the patriarch. Maybe Zen and other schools of Buddhism and other traditions have managed to maintain this direct transmission beyond the scriptures from one generation to the next. Only time will tell. In our Zen tradition, all our cultural practices and performances, rituals, ceremonies, reenactments, artistic expressions, are all in the service of maintaining and preserving this profound insight into the unity of all experience, of how we all participate in this one mind or consciousness, or if you prefer, this one universal life. Even placing our hands together in gasho, palms, fingers and thumbs touching each other, is an expression of this not too. Our Zen practice has evolved from this deep sense of wonder into the oneness of life that is the birthright of all human beings. From this deep sense of wonder and the realization of the unity of the diversity of all life forms, arises the aspiration to do good and to cease from doing harm, the ethical dimension of our practice. We fall in love with life itself. We naturally wish to take care of the world because the world is ourself. Zazen, Dharma talks and rituals are all expressions of this aspiration. This wonder is life becoming aware of life, of awareness becoming aware of awareness in the form of a human being. When our selfhood realizes our Buddhahood, Zen can be described as a religion of life or a reverence for all life. In Zen Buddhism, we do not worship a transcendental God, 
However, we do bow down in reverence and awe at the wonder of life. The vastness of the blue sky and the Milky Way at night. The still presence of the mountains and the life force of the great rivers and oceans. The luminosity of the autumn moon sparkling on the ocean waves. We also aspire to relate to all sentient beings, rocks, plants and animals with wonder and respect at the incredible diversity of life forms. In receiving the precepts, we receive our life. Some students are happy to identify as Buddhists. Others prefer to think of themselves as students of the way. Participating in the Jukai ceremony is a formal ritual of entrance onto the Zen path and it's perfectly fine to say, I am entering the Buddha's way or simply entering the universal way, but I don't consider myself as a Buddhist. In other words, it's very important to bring your own personalized understanding and meaning into these practices, while at the same time, honoring this very rich and ancient legacy that is our job to preserve, maintain and reinvent for each new successive generation. So now I'm at the part two of the talk, which I'm calling self-psychology as a psycho-spiritual developmental theory. Heinz Kuhut coined the term self-object experiences to express how the self requires affirmation by empathic and attuned others to grow and develop into an interdependent center of agency, a self that is capable of making wise choices. The word self-object, no hyphen, expresses the understanding that our self is formed and maintained in an interdependent matrix of relationships. Kuhut identified three primary psychological needs or lines of development that span the totality of the life cycle. He called them mirroring, as in a mirror, idealizing and twinship. These needs change as the child grows into an adult. So we have early, basic or archaic self-object needs and later more mature self-object needs. So I'll just summarize what he meant by mirroring experiences. And this is a quote from a psychologist called Zimmerman. In the mirror line of development, we look to others to feel truly known and accurately seen. In the archaic mirror experience, we feel admired, the object of the other's adoring gaze. In the more mature mirror experience, we feel recognized and valued for who we know ourselves to be. 
A successful mirror experience contributes to a cohesive, reliable, and realistic self-esteem and a solid sense of self-worth. So examples in infancy, what we normally refer to as baby talk. So we're connecting with the infant through the face and tone of voice. We attune to the baby's excitement with our tone of voice and our face, and then we gradually help to calm and soothe the infant in the similar way with our tone of voice and face. Research shows that if the infant is not provided with these kinds of experiences, it can literally fall into despair if these needs are not met. Examples from a childhood, the recognition through applause and affirmation when the child is proud of accomplishing a task. And as parents will say, well done, Jimmy, or good job, Mary. And as adults, we continue to need these experiences coming in a more mature form of, for example, showing appreciation to our adult partners or friends, showing them how much we value having them in our lives, giving them that experience of recognition. Or that can come in various workplaces if we get recognition for our work by our peers or managers. I want to talk about idealizing experiences. Again, this is a quote from a book by Zimmerman. In the idealizing line of development, we look for merger with someone whom we experience as calming, strong and wise. One who offers him or herself for our protection and guidance. A successful merger with an idealized other provides opportunities for soothing, which results in a reliable capacity for affect regulation, self-regulation. Over time, through infancy and childhood, we internalize these experiences and find ourselves able to regulate our own emotions. So examples, when the infant is upset and crying, we hold and rock the infant and soothe the infant back to sleep. For a child might wake up feeling afraid at night, frightened of monsters under the bed, comes into the parent's bed, snuggles in, feels safe and protected and falls asleep. Or the child might be feeling frustrated and upset and the parent responds with a kind and empathic tone of voice. Or as adults, we can experience a supportive relationship with a mentor, a therapist, a teacher or a coach that provides reliability and responsiveness to our own self-doubts and insecurities who encourages us to develop our talents and our ambitions. Finally, twinship experiences. Let's get a quote from Zimmerman. In the twinship line of development, 
we look to find in the other an experience of a likeness, a feeling of sameness that is shared, which results in the consolidation of self-experience. We seek to recognize ourselves in the other and yearn for the other to recognize themselves in us. Twinship lays the groundwork for a sense of shared humanity, a feeling of being human among humans. So, for example, in childhood, finding friends with similar interests. In adolescence, one example I remember from being at um, primary school, late primary school, was sharing a secret, such as disclosing attraction to another boy or girl, to a, a friend who I trusted. In adults, we experience, in our adult life, we experience friendships with peers. And we can also share group experiences, such as a bowling club or a Buddhist Sangha, that create a sense of belonging and acceptance. So these are all good experiences that create a, a sense of a strong and resilient self, capable of empathizing with self and others, laying the foundations for the kind of Zen practices that we engage in. Now, I just want to say something about Kuhut's understanding of psychological suffering. So self-object experiences are fundamental human needs akin to oxygen and food. When we receive these experiences on a reliable and consistent basis, it builds a cohesive and resilient self that is open to expanding far beyond the borders of the individual. However, when children and adults are deprived of these experiences through neglect or abuse, injuries to the self or developmental trauma takes place. Kuhut located the source of human psychological suffering in the absence of reliable emotionally attuned others or in the presence of emotionally misattuned others or even worse violent and abusive others this is a quote from a book by cooper and randall on self-psychology and religion something else happens to us when we feel let down by persons we rely upon to help us feel good about ourselves. When we are criticized or disappointed or rejected, we tend to respond by drawing back or by striking out. Injuries to the self lead us to withdrawal in hurt or to react with rage. This leads to the lines of development becoming distorted and defended against, resulting in the chronic sense of not being good enough or unlovable. The self literally shrinks, withdraws and contracts into narrow and rigid views. However, the good news is that these self-object needs for mirroring, idealizing and twinship, if not met during childhood and adolescence, can be rekindled in the context of a new experience in a caring adult relationship. 
In the context of such a relationship, defenses can be let down and the line of development that was initially derailed is put back on track again. So now I want to talk about religious cultural practices and, relation, and relationships as possible mature self-object experiences or what some people describe as cultural self-objects. So most of us experience some kind of developmental trauma in childhood or adolescence, leaving us feeling that something is missing from our lives. We often feel a sense of deficit in some way and we may seek out therapy to fix it. Fortunately, this sense of lack or incompleteness can at times trigger the spiritual search. And if circumstances and conditions are favorable, our developmental longing for growth can be met through the pursuit of education, therapy, and worthwhile vocations, or through spiritual and religious practices such as yoga and meditation. Religious cultural practices and relationships can be experienced as self-objects or cultural self-objects, contributing to our awakening to our true nature. Idealizing experiences are available in relationships with mentors, such as spiritual teachers. This was my experience with my teacher. Idealizing experiences can also be found through merging with figures such as Christ or Buddha or the female form of compassion, Kuan Yin. This merging with these religious figures can literally help us realize our non-separation from our original Buddha nature or true self. The social and relational context of the church or Sangha can also provide opportunities for mirroring and twinship experiences. Our participation in the Sangha can grow our self-confidence and satisfy our needs for belonging and acceptance. The Sangha can also be perhaps understood as a group self, providing self-object experiences for its members. And, and again, rituals, performances, reenactments, art, music, ceremonies can also provide these needed experiences. Can any of this go wrong? Like any relationship, yes, this can also go horribly wrong. It often takes a long time for someone who has been psychologically injured to allow archaic needs for recognition and understanding to be felt again. During the formation of the bond, the therapist or teacher will inevitably at times lack attunement and make mistakes. But hopefully these will be within the client's or student's window of tolerance thereby promoting healthy growth of the person's self. But unfortunately, we have to recognize there can also be traumatic ruptures that repeat historical traumas through direct acts of commission or omission, whereby the Zen student is re-traumatized. My teacher Barry Majid has seen a number of Zen students who have been re-traumatized in the context 
of their relationship with the teacher and Sangha. So in conclusion, if all goes well, Zen, through its cultural practices and relationships, provides favorable circumstances and conditions for the student to grow and develop, leading to awakening to self-nature. However, mindful attention to creating a safe and trusting culture is absolutely essential. One of the ways in which we all have the opportunity to put our precept study into practice is within the way we conduct ourselves in our Sangha relationships. And even more importantly, in my experience, how we conduct ourselves with our immediate family, especially our partners, if we have one. Finally, prioritizing the importance of self-care is always an essential expression of our Zen practice. Our practice is all about the experience of joy and caring for self and each other, not some kind of self-sacrifice where we neglect our own needs to prioritize the needs of others. We will now open up for discussion. Thank you all for your listening. So feel free to um, share your own experiences or ask a question. Um, and we have some uh, Sangha members here who probably know more about Kohut than I do. So I'll also invite them to share their own uh, experiences of that as well. <clears throat> Michael, are you 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 you're still muted? That's right. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Thank you for a really good synthesis summary of certainly what I understand to be the essence, the essence of of self-psychology, which is the modality I also practice in. Um, yeah, pretty much, pretty much summed it up. Um, and uh, a really good linkage with 
with the with the connection point between development and the promise of uh, mature development as self psychology sees it and and the liberation that Zen offers and certainly from my understanding of Barry he's um, he's found a pretty much seamless way of working the two together as a, as a practice like as you know he says um, there's no difference for him in how in how he works um, I, I, I think there are differences that may or may not be apparent when one is working through oneself working through stuff like around the blockages, the transference blockages that come up that you mentioned, the, the hopes and the dreads that might play out and uh, one doesn't necessarily have a sense of, oh, wait a minute, this could be just a, I experience it as in the moment, this is what's happening and it's real, but there's something perhaps dreadfully familiar that keeps coming up again and again, like a rerun of the same constellation of self and other that's traumatic or uh, something that really li limits experiencing a a more more free sense of self in the world with others and um, I think that's a really challenging part of our lives whether we work through a a therapy lens or a, a Zen lens or well it's amazing to work through both but it, yeah be really difficult and confusing. I've been, I, I, I first studied self-psychology in, in the uh, early 90s, started to study it in, the, in a formal course and started 30 years of therapy, you know, which I still do. Uh, and, you know, thinking along the way at times, oh, I've got this figured now. <laughs> I've got this figured. I, I can see my transferences. I can see how they play out. Right, right. Okay, good. Um, and blow me down how uh, it's somewhere along the line. You know, it's like, <laughs> my God, it's still happening. You know, like it's, these things can be so deep deep patterning and just to clarify i don't see transferences as just something going wrong with a personal relationship or something or idealizing that goes wrong and it leaves a trauma i i see transference fundamentally as the way we organize the experience of now, this is how it is. It's 
like uh, through a traumatic memory being triggered, there it is. It's like, boom, we're transported into the trance, into the dream. And um, so when we talk about in our vows, uh, caught in a self-centered dream, a dream within a dream, I do see it in a self-psychology sense as caught within a transference within the overall sort of dream of the world. This is how it is with all those um, kind of distorted, distorted configurations of uh, self and other or whatever built in. So it's a lifelong, it's a lifelong job. Um, right now I'm working with some very deep stuff that comes from one of those cohort things about pathological accommodation where we somehow live, live and do things to meet the other's needs. It's as if you substitute that for some direct, direct way of being in the world. So, you know, there I go, working through my early mum stuff right now as it plays out in my dealings with other people in the world or organisations or, you know, interacting with Ozzine or whatever. It's like, what, what the hell? It's happening again. Okay, well, there's work to do. And the wonder is that one can do it and do it together with other people. Thanks for um, articulating those parts of this work and our journey. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, um, the uh, the Japanese word kensho, which may be translated as seeing our true nature or recognizing our true nature, is understood in Zen as, as just the beginning point. Really the lifelong journey is the integration of all the complex self stuff with our Buddha nature. And, and, it, and, and that goes on forever. The deepening in that goes on forever. Yeah. Yeah. And as we know only too well, um, teachers who have had Deep experiences of recognizing their true nature are still left with blind spots in terms of the, the developmental experience of their selves, which get played out in different ways in their relationships. A little willy wagtail has just appeared at the window. <laughs> nice. Who would like to go next? It looks like it's a season for little willy wagtails this year. <laughs> um, the, the thing that I rely on is, is like at the moment, as you, you know, I've gone in, I'm going into a type of retreat because I find, as you call it, the transference starts getting out of hand. <laughs> so, 
it, or what you call it, projections, or and and I feel myself going off kilter. I mean, this is this is the thing to me is that awareness um, where where my past traumas are being prodded, and this is what helps me with fabulous talk. Thank you, Andrew. Is 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 bringing that awareness into it, that knowledge and awareness, like ah. Uh, that's what's happening to some degree however i unravel it it's a feeling that things are not as they truly are that we, the, perhaps you know as i'm seeing reality is not truly how the reality is <laughs> and that's the reality is the love is the you know the the beauty seeing being and being in connection with those things yeah so you know knowledge like this that you've given us today is um is a gift to to have awareness around these things and where we can be so yeah. thank you <laughs> and, and thank you michael yes that was um an, another take of, uh, Fabulous um, perspective too. Thank you, Pingler. Yeah. I mean, people often talk about flashbacks, which don't necessarily have to be visual. Um, Reenacting the past in some way in the context of relationships, how the present gets repeated and and uh, how we get caught up in that. We uh, it's um, so hopefully part of our Zen practice um, can dovetail into the, the therapy experience of being able to use these triggers of flashbacks or reenactments or um, whatever we are experiencing as as gateways or doorways into liberation yeah Hi, uh, hopefully not too jerky. Hi, David. Um, yeah, thanks, Andrew and Mike. And I'm just remembering back. I hope you can hear me all right through the lag. Yes. Yes, no? Yes. Um, yeah, I just, I just really resonated when you started to talk at some point about the idea of sort of creating favourable grounds, circumstances, knowledge, 
skill and also not having to create it from scratch of like recognizing the favorable circumstances that are already present to even be able to think of practicing or think of uh, feeling some distress or dissatisfaction around being able to experience the fullness of the moment or the fullness of the relationship with others. Um, so I feel like you just really opened up a beautiful base and opened up the door in a way that um, has helped bring some of this stuff that I'm really wrestling with around myself and ultimately how to sit with myself, be with myself and be in some kind of position to connect with others, which is sort of my life journey. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you. I mean, all of us here, everybody here right now, we, we still experience, you know, different ways of suffering, we have different difficulties. But everybody here has had favorable circumstances and conditions. From a Buddhist point of view, we're all beneficiary of favorable conditions and circumstances. So that's good to reflect on and to remind ourselves of that when we get caught into you know, darker, more shadowy, despairing moments. Yeah. We're all actually doing quite well. Yeah, and it's, I'm sort of hearing for myself, it's not just shadowy moments, it's the shadow within each moment that also needs to be, well, for me, I need to leave room for it in the picture, otherwise I just go into a sort of, try and get onto this sort of positive um, track of, of and, and sort of distancing myself and separating myself in some new way, <laughs> yeah, part yeah, of myself yeah. or, or some real experience in the moment of. Yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. It's, it gets very subtle. Yeah, yeah. That, that's right. Yeah, that, as in the roomy, in the roomy poem, the guest house. You know, invite them all onto the into the onto the table. Yeah. Yeah. Richard? Yeah, just, uh, sorry, can you hear me? Yeah. Yep. Um, oh, look, I just think this is such a fantastic uh, discussion and thank you, Andrew, and everyone that's spoken. It's just a lot of food for thought. Um, and just, uh, you know, so much that's uh, going through my mind, but uh, just on the last point um, that, well, I guess it's a theme that, that's run through this discussion is the you know, the difficulty of sitting with um, what's happening in the present moment when uh, it's unpleasant or it's traumatic or you're, um, you know, suffering is really, for me, it's one of the, the great paradoxes of the practice is, uh, and it's, it's very challenging because I think we're all conditioned through culturally and just through our own experience of um, uh, resisting and fighting and, uh, and uh, wanting to run away from when we're when we're having distressing or unpleasant feelings or experiences, 
and they are happening in the moment, you know, in your body and your mind and you're ruminating and you're having these uh, sense, these experiences of being a separate individual self. Um, and uh, yeah, it's interesting. It, 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 it comes up for me a lot. And from what I'm hearing, it's, it's a very common uh, struggle to, to actually sit with that and not, um, you know, because you, you instinctively just want it to go away. You want to feel, you want to feel good. You know, you want to feel better. You don't want to feel all that pain and trauma and stuff that you, you, that's, you know, feeling, you're feeling alienated and separated and, and painful emotions and so on. So it's just, uh, mm. yeah, and 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 um, you know, one hopes that with these favorable conditions and circumstances, the the people in our lives, groups like this we belong to, all create the container for these experiences, so that you, when you're ready, you'll be able to be with them and transform them. And the uh, the frog will turn into the prince. Nothing against frogs, <laughs> but yeah, the, 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 they're the barriers. The problems are the way. Yeah. And uh, how we come together like this, uh, supporting each other, creating you know a sense of self that can uh, integrate these. difficult um, developmental experiences from the past when we were younger when we couldn't integrate but now as we're more mature we can as best we can like i said before it's a lifelong journey but the light is always shining you know it's um it's always here and uh that's the other aspect of this. To uh, this needs to be founded on recognizing that as well, and uh, being able to rest in that when we need to. The true self as the ultimate, really, um, self-object, if you like. Uh, Angie. Um, yeah, thanks for the um, very interesting talk, Andrew, and for everybody's comments. Um, I think the part that resonates with me um, was the, the bit about the reverence for life and how that is such an important thread that goes through um, goes through this practice um, and the joy I think that we can we can find in it as well. So it's just the other side of um, of the same thing. So um, yeah, thanks very much. Thank you. Yeah. 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 I think it also importantly finding ways to celebrate that reverence for life too. To 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 enact that reverence for life culturally as well, you know.
Okay, anybody else who hasn't um, made a comment or asked a question? Got a few minutes might left. might be worth making about the, the fit between the, the Western sort of therapy approach and the Buddhist approach. And I, I think you touched on it, Andrew, when, when talking about lack, um, my understanding from Barry's work is, is uh, that Buddhism starts from a fundamental position of wholeness, uh, that you're okay as you are. In fact, you're, you're Buddha as you are, except we, we really struggle to believe that. And that, and that then the work begins. Uh, but there's something very soothing and, and really conducive to healing in that. Um, compared perhaps with the Western kind of medical kind of pathologizing model where there's some sense of character flaw or whatever, it can feel punishing that, you know, no matter how hard you work, you may never be free of that sense of damaged self, which can hinder greater freedom. And I think it's really a wonderful thing, as we've talked privately, that the fit between the two kind of bring a great synergy. Um, and I think I agree, I agree that the that the the sense of Oh, I'm okay as I am. Wow! And now the work begins. I could use a little improvement as a really lovely way of entering into growth and liberation. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and, and I agree. And you know, in some ways, the the, meta, the metaphor of uh, car mechanics or fixing a car entered into therapy at some point along the way, and we're not cars. Nobody here ultimately is damaged. 